Hi there, Paula Eamon here with a heart full of love for you and a heart's desire to encourage you to endure this short life with joy and hope by the grace of God for the glory of God. What is a witness? It is someone who gives information of an event or change based on their knowledge from personal observation or experience with the indication that what they have communicated is indeed true. A Christian witness shares information by their words and actions in such a way that you cannot help but walk away convinced that God is not only real, but that He is the rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. Are you a witness? Have you come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? He died for you, and He is ready for you to come to Him in repentance and faith. Today's episode was inspired by my guest from episode 6, Christine Greens. Her husband was the nephew of one of our main witnesses today, Irene Farrell. Throughout my ministry experience, I have observed people who serve in churches and Christian nonprofits overwhelmed by the work it takes to keep up with technology. Websites, social media, emails, and text messaging, they all can provide incredible opportunities for personal connection, but also monumental distractions from the mission. Let me tell you about Ministry Ally. They support churches and Christian nonprofits through web design and hosting, digital communication, and remote ministry assistance. If you, your pastor, or a ministry partner need help with a website or any other digital communication, schedule an appointment at ministryally.com to learn more. That's M-I-N-I-S-T-R-Y-A-L-L-Y.com. Now to Episode 7, All Suffer Together. Ruth Heggie and Irene Farrell were living and serving at a mission station in the Congo in 1964. Due to the country's newfound independence and the corrupt government's unkept promises, the people were highly disillusioned and bitter. The atmosphere was electric. Communist-mentored terrorists called the Jeunesse were trying to flush whites, Christians, and non-compliance out of the area. Tragically for Ruth and Irene, that meant they were targets. Listen as Ruth gives her terrifying account of the night of the attack. Suddenly, I realized we were surrounded. We were no longer in the eye of the storm, but we were a weak and helpless target directly in the path of the storm. Without warning, that peaceful silence had been broken by the frightening thud of running bare feet. It was an instantaneous rush as a frightened cattle in a stampede, quick and unexpected. From all directions, they were converging on our house. I heard the sharp cries of Benoit, Luca, and the others who were patrolling the grounds. Anger, fear, warning were in their voices. Our Christian friends were loyally trying to protect us, but they had no chance in the advancing flood tide of 30 or 40 marauders. The next instant, blood-curdling shrieks pierced the stillness with the simultaneous crash of shattering window panes in my room. I jumped from my bed and stood in the center of the room, trembling like a frightened deer pursued and trapped by the hunters. Terrified, I looked about for a way of escape. My heart pounded violently, as if it would leap from within me. I was clothed only in my nightgown. I felt horribly exposed. And then I noticed with gratitude that the drapes were still drawn at my windows. I must get dressed quickly and find Irene. 
Hurriedly, I jerked on the slip skirt and blouse which lay on the chair. My hands shook so I could scarcely fasten the buttons on my blouse. That which seemed most unlikely on our mission station was actually happening. The fury of the storm was breaking, breaking on us. The jeunesse were attacking. With increased frenzy, the shrieks and splintering of glass continued. My thoughts were still for Irene. I must find her. Snatching my shoes, I darted into the hall. Irene was just coming out of the bathroom fully dressed. She had not yet been in bed. We looked at each other, bewildered. What shall we do? Where shall we hide? Shall we lock ourselves in the bathroom? Our questions hung unanswered in midair as the angry, infuriated jeunesse broke in upon us. Our two Congolese volunteers keeping watch were able to escape. Philip through the front door and Gaston through a broken window at the back of the house. The invaders confronted us, brandishing grass tor torches. They carried bows and arrows and threatened us with long, flashing knives. Bima! 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 Things, things, things it means in Ketuba language. I later learned that Bima also means get out in the Lingala. Gladly, we would get out and let them have all our things if they would but spare our lives. My shoes, a most desirable possession to the Congolese, were yanked roughly out of my hand. Shoving, pulling, shouting frantically, they dragged us through the hall and living room out the front door. One of the bandits pushed me unmercifully hard in the back, thrusting me down the front stairs. Fortunately, I caught my footing. Another grabbed at the belt of my heavy poplin skirt. The jerk at my garment was so violent it all but threw me to the ground. It was ripped in two and taken from me. With horror, I felt hands clutching at my blouse, which was of much thinner material. Providentially, it did not tear. We were surrounded by half-naked, drug-crazed savages whipped to a frenzy. Maddened, they couldn't seem to stop. They pulled and pushed, pulled and pushed us another fifty feet across the grass. Where were they taking us? What were they going to do with us? Did they intend to torture us? I felt grateful that Irene and I were still together, but as these questions flashed across my mind, I saw ahead of us in the moonlight the menacing black body of a terrorist. He turned to face us, horror mounted as I saw him fling something at us. His arrow came hurtling at Irene and with terrific force plunged into the left side of her throat. She instinctively reached up and with her strong hands pulled it out. Blood literally gushed from the wound. I am finished, she gasped, took another step and collapsed. Oh, Irene, I cried and fell to the ground beside her. Vaguely, I remember being dragged by the arm, the bodily abuse by our assailants, the tremendous emotional drain, and the feeling of faintness at the sight of blood flowing from Irene's wound apparently caused me to slip into unconsciousness. When I regained consciousness, I was lying on the ground on my left side, close to Irene, under the large shade trees in front of our house. Who was Irene? Irene Elizabeth Farrell was born on December 18, 1921 in South Dakota to a devout farmer and his wife. She was a very energetic third child. Raised near the Cheyenne Indian Reservation, she loved riding horses bareback. 
She was a slightly mischievous child. She was willful and headstrong. She received the most spankings of all the feral children. As an aside, are you the parent of a strong-willed child? Don't give up. At age nine, her sister Winnie came to saving faith in the Lord. This impacted her tremendously because she and her sister were very close. She was saved just a few days later. Irene grew to be a conscientious student, an incredible athlete, a master trapper, and an excellent markswoman. All of these things served her well on the mission field, the mission field being that of the Congo. Following in her sister's footsteps again, she arrived there in 1951. Before leaving for the Congo, she wrote to her parents, I have wonderful parents who have a wonderful Lord. No doubt this precious sentiment came from the mountain of memory she had of her father faithfully leading the family in family worship. Worship of the one true God is found in the Word of God. Now, as Irene was to South Dakota and the Cheyenne Indian Reservation, so was Ruth Heggie to southeastern Idaho near the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. She lived in a three-room shack for 10 years of her life before the family moved to Pennsylvania. Thinking back on those 10 years in the shack, Ruth described it as the most blessed place in all the world. Why was that? One reason was the Bible scripture scroll that her incredibly poor parents bought and pulled out only on Sundays so that it remained a treasured item meant to point the family to the Lord. The story of the good shepherd looking for the lost lamb and bringing it home on his shoulders was her favorite. Ruth was known to be unordinarily fond of home and family. At one point, she said that no palatial mansion could even begin to compare with that humble little black shack and its dear occupants. Remember, listener, not one thing in this world means as much to your children as a happy home. Lay down your pursuit of things big and small. Pour your energy into the people who inhabit your dwelling, whether it be humble or grand. Sunday was the highlight of the Heggie's Week. Ruth's mom spent Monday making sure their clothes were ready for the next Sunday. They also spent a lot of family time together on Sundays. Every morning of the week, their father would read scripture to them from the daily calendar. Then he would pray with them, thanking the Lord for his daily goodness to them. Ruth recalls coming to faith in Christ as a child. Fast forward to February of 1931. A 26-year-old Ruth attended a service in which a veteran missionary of the Unevangelized Tribes Mission of Congo spoke. She was so moved by the Lord that she yielded herself to be a missionary to Congo that very night. The $1,300 needed to get to the Congo was a staggering amount, considering this was during the Depression. Her father encouraged her to have faith in the Lord, because as he said, the Lord had never failed to take care of them. Her home church was very sacrificial and encouraging through this process, and her pastor was very supportive. On the cold, wintry night of January 25, 1932, her church gathered at the train station for the final farewell. She wept hard as her loved ones were finally out of sight. I want you to remember the love and support of the believers in her life. We'll revisit this topic in just a minute. Over the years, starting in 1957, Ruth and Irene ran into each other in various places, but it wasn't until August of 1961 that they connected in the Congo, because up until that point, things were still considered dangerous for single women. 
Ruth went to a village in Mbongo because she felt that living among the villagers instead of a mission station lent itself to sharing the word of God with more liberty and authority. A month later, Irene joined her to set out on their first village trip together. Feeling strongly that their stay would not be long gave them urgency while sharing the gospel. Soon enough, they went back to the mission station to serve in multiple ways, and tragically, it is on that very property that the gruesome act of Irene's murder took place. Ruth lay beside her trying to figure out what in the world she was going to do now. She was going to figure out how to carry on. Before the horrible attack at the hand of the Jeunesse, a rescue helicopter had been communicating with everyone at the mission station off and on, warning them that the attack was coming. Now Ruth desperately wanted to get connected with it, but oh how difficult that would prove to be. She realized that she had a huge gash on her left arm caused by an arrow, but more painful than that was the turmoil in her soul. Why did Irene have to die? And why did she survive? The Holy Spirit whispered to her from the book of Mark, Peace, be still. She was calmed. She then continued to dwell on the truths that God is good and that he is in control. The Bible would be her constant companion in the days that followed as she hid from place to place. It gave her boldness as she looked terrorists in the eyes and shared the gospel. Her hope in the promises of God carried her all the way through to the day that the rescue helicopter finally arrived to fly her to safety. What I want to spend the rest of the time highlighting are the costly efforts given by the Congolese believers. They may have been impoverished of this world's treasures, but they were eternally wealthy. It was their heart for God that poured out onto Ruth in such a way that her rescue was guaranteed. What kind of things did they do? First, they buried Irene. And they didn't just bury her. They cleaned her body and sobbed. Then they buried her. They looked through all of Ruth's looted things and found her house coat. They brought Ruth clothes that she had given to them so that she could wear them. They came up with money to pay her ransom. They advised her as to where to safely spend nights while she was on the run. Over the days that she was on the run, they came to check on her, bringing her a banana, a bowl of rice, greens, boiled eggs, salt, coffee, papaya, pineapple, water to drink, and some water to help her clean up. They came to greet her, giving thanks to God that she had made it safely through the night. They stayed with her to make sure she was safe. They made sure she knew that if she needed anything, she could call them. They brought a table, a chair, and a bamboo bed to one of her hideouts so that she could be comfortable. They fasted and prayed for her rescue. They escorted her 25 miles to get her, they hoped, to the rescue helicopter. They brought a bicycle because she was exhausted and needed to be pushed at times. They came armed with a bow and arrow to protect her. They treated her wound. How beautifully these Congolese believers reflected what the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12. He says that as a body is made up of many parts, so the church is made up of many members. He goes on to say that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Ruth was suffering greatly. Truly, her life was on the line. What did the Congolese do? They banded together for her sake to comfort, protect, feed, befriend, pray, weep, and give thanks. They all suffered together with her. I cannot get over how very dear all of this is, and I cannot help but beg all of us Christians to look like these Congolese witnesses. We desperately need each other. Life can be so very difficult. Are you like the Levite and the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan? When you see a fellow believer suffering, do you give them a wide girth and hope you don't have to get involved? Or are you like the Samaritan who got down with the attacked man? He probably got dirty. He probably got tired. He definitely gave of his resources to treat the man's wounds and to pay for his stay in the inn. This is what true Christianity looks like. Self-denial for the sake of others. May it be so. Luke 10, 29-37 But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy? Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thank you so much for joining me today on this journey with some very precious witnesses. This podcast may not be perfect in every way, but I sure hope that it inspires you to endure for the cause of Christ. Ruth's account of Irene's death was read from the book We Too Alone by Ruth Heggie. God bless you, friend. Thank you.